0: Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to uh, our second podcast series in the, in the Policy and Pint series. We're here at Abuelo's um, for uh, the Thursday overtime. The goal of this series uh, each month is to identify a policy topic and bring in an expert uh, to kind of uh, give us an update on that policy topic. With the importance of the Department of Labor overtime rule, we decided for the second month we want to revisit this policy topic and bring in another employment law expert to chat with us. Uh, Today, that's Carrie Harris from Spelman Thomas & Battle Attorneys. Uh, They have offices in Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. Carrie is in the Roanoke office and licensed and barred in Virginia and West Virginia. She's a Roanoke college grad, received her J.D. from William & Mary. Her primary area of practice is litigation with an emphasis on labor and employment law. She's been named as a rising star by Virginia Super Lawyers and is affiliated with several community and professional organizations locally, including a graduate of Leadership Roanoke Valley. Yeah. So, Carrie, thanks for joining us. We Thank appreciate you for you having being. me. Absolutely. So today, I'm going to provide a brief background on the overtime regulation. Uh, we kind of dive deep into that on our first series last month. Today, I want to focus a little bit more on some of the misconceptions that are out there, compliance strategies, and some of the penalties for noncompliance. If you're interested in in the background and um, and some information on that, I encourage you to uh, look at our social media outlets for our podcast that we did last month. So after months, even close to a year or two of speculation, on May 18th of 2016, the uh, Department of Labor released its much-anticipated final rule, That raises the white collar exemption threshold from twenty three thousand to forty seven thousand four hundred and seventy six annually. It's expected to impact four plus million workers, uh, and businesses are going to need to be in compliance by the first pay period in December. So, Kerry, because this is such a complex issue, I've barely scratched the surface with that brief background. Um, I may have even mouthed off a few misconceptions myself. Um, let us know what those misconceptions are and how you're communicating that with, with uh, some of your clients.
1: So I think that the thing that I would sort of start with as being the most important thing to recognize is that the rule in the United States is that all employees, as a baseline, are entitled to be paid a minimum wage and overtime. We all get caught up in this, well, do you make a salary or you do not make a salary? The, the baseline rule is that you pay someone an hourly wage plus overtime for hours worked in excess of 40. The way you get to the white-collar exemption is just that. It's an exemption to that base rule. So everybody's starting point as an employer should be to think the default is I pay them by the hour and I pay them overtime. Only do I avoid that if they fit into one of these enumerated exemptions. Um, The second thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that, When you are thinking about what you should do with an employee and how to classify them, the difference is not salaried or hourly. The difference is between exempt and non-exempt. And that's a really important distinction because as you are trying to figure out how you're going to comply and how you want to treat and classify your workers, you do still have the option to pay an employee with a salary. It just means that you are still going to be obligated to pay them overtime if they work in excess of 40 hours. So, for example, if you have an employee who you know comes in at 8.30 every day, works until 5.30 every day, and takes an hour lunch, you don't really have to worry about overtime for them. Now, the Department of Labor's Fair Labor Standards Act is going to require you to keep track of their hours But you don't really have to be concerned that that employee is going to get paid a lot of time and a half because you know they work a pretty set schedule. So you could opt to pay them the same salary. All you would need to do to comply with the new rules is to put in place a timekeeping mechanism so that you could figure out when you do owe them overtime. So it's really important. Exempt or non exempt boils down to do they fall into one of these four exemptions? And then you can think about ways to be creative with their pay. But merely paying them a salary is not, in and of itself, going to mean that you avoid the obligation to pay overtime.
0: You mentioned those four exemptions, and what exactly are those four exemptions?
1: So we refer to those as the white-collar exemptions. Um, the one that is probably—the the couple that are most common is you have an executive exemption, those folks in the higher-level um, leadership positions in your organization, professional, which is the one I fall into. Um, But the one that is going to be overwhelmingly the most common is the administrative exemption, which is going to cover folks who exercise some level of um, independence and discretion, but also deal with some particularized area of your practice, like an accounts payable person and um, someone in human resources. That's going to be the most common exemption I think you're going to see and probably the one that causes... The greatest right. confusion.
0: And while we're on the misconceptions, um, and this kind of hits home for the Reno Regional Chamber as a nonprofit, you hear a lot that that this isn't going to impact nonprofits, and I believe that that is a misconception. Correct? It, that is absolutely
1: a misconception. And and there actually was quite recently published a relatively good resource by the Department of Labor on this very topic. It's sort of a four or five page document that says, here's how you're going to be subject as a nonprofit to the new overtime rules, but it applies to a nonprofit the same way as it does a for-profit business.
0: And I'll just add, you know, another misconception or a request is, you know, why don't, why don't you put in some legislation to nullify this? Um, and I don't think that there's enough time and I don't think it would be veto proof um, if they did have enough time. It's important to clarify that this is a rule that was handed down by the department of labor uh, it was not a piece of legislation that that was vetted and, and voted on. So,
1: Well, certainly, I mean, obviously Congress could come in and pass a law to override the authority of the Department of Labor. Right. That's relatively unlikely to happen. Um, but I actually just briefly this morning in looking at the news saw an article that said um, – because obviously we can't escape that the presidential election is going to have some impact, but, um, apparently Hillary Clinton's position is she fully supports it. But I saw today that Donald Trump's position was that he supported some relief for small business, which does not mean that he would get rid of it. It means that he could envision attempting to make some slight changes Changes. to lessen the impact. So I think that the rule is here to stay. And Mm -hmm. quite honestly, um, Part of the problem with the rule, and we'll probably talk about this in a minute, is that the figure 23,660 has been in place for a really long time. And it doesn't account for the natural changes that occur in a person's salary over the years. And so, in reality, it was a little antiquated. Mm-hmm. I think this the sticker shock here is really what has caused everybody so much concern. I mean, they've doubled it. right? And that's, that's a quick number to see a change in.
0: So, you know... I would suggest and recommend, and I'm sure you would do the same, it's time to go ahead and prepare. And businesses have three months, really, to prepare, getting into November. Um, What do you recommend to a business employer, especially small businesses that do not have an in-house HR department or legal department? What are some ways that they could start preparing to become compliant? I that December first.
1: well, I, I think for me, the what I have been recommending to clients right now is you have time. You have until December one, you need to be prepared for any payment made after December one to be compliant, but that's that's ninety days pretty much from right. today. What I would recommend that you do is um, go ahead and conduct an audit. You can look at your workforce and you can identify those who are going to fall under the forty seven thousand four seventy six figure. And so those are going to be the ones who are at issue, right? Now, as an aside, I would go ahead and audit your entire workforce, because you should be making sure, even if they're making over 47000 unless their duties meet one of those exemptions, then they are still entitled to overtime. So I would go ahead and audit your whole workforce, because let's say you were doing something a little wrong with an employee, like misclassifying, now's a really great time to say, we did this in response to the DOL rules. Right. But for those employees who are under 47,000, you're gonna to have to look at them and you're gonna to have to figure out whether you're gonna transition them to a straight hourly. Do they work a set 40 hour schedule? So it's a simple matter of take their salary, divide it by 40, pay them an hourly rate. Do you pay them a salary based upon that number? Or, and this is obviously the employee category that people are worried about, are those folks who you are getting a lot of bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. They're working well in excess of 40 hours, but they're not making close to that number. And you have to figure out whether you're going to end up paying them more in overtime than you would if you gave them a salary bump. So what I would recommend is take 45, 60 days and start making those folks keep track of their time all of their time, when they show up in the morning, when they go for lunch, are they working from home? How much are they working from home? And then you can take that time that they're giving you and use that to evaluate how you want to pay them. Um, Because if you really don't have any idea how much your employees are working, which you may not for someone who you're paying a salary, because what's the incentive to know how much they're working? You know that they're going to make their salary no matter how many hours they Mm -hmm. work. And now you don't have that luxury. Um, And in fact, the FLSA imposes upon employers a separate record-keeping obligation. So failure to keep records is an independent violation of the FLSA above and apart from the failure to pay appropriately. So there are two good reasons why you need to do that. But if you ever were subject to a lawsuit, your failure to keep records is going to work completely against you. Because when the employee comes in and says, I was working 75 hours a week, you don't have any evidence to oppose that. And in fact, you will have been in breach of your obligations under the FLSA. So there are going to be a lot of reasons why you want to know. And the audit is going to let you figure out how you want to deal with these people. Um, so, you know, you obviously have a lot of different ways to respond to that, but I think it's important to get your arms around how much, how many hours a week are we talking.
0: Right, and it sounds like employers are going to have to start having some conversations with their employees, and you know those conversations might be a bit awkward or uncomfortable, but they need to, after the audit, start having those conversations pretty soon. Um, and tell me a little bit more. So I've heard some, some rumors that... Bonuses and incentive pay uh, play a part in um, that salary threshold, where you can incorporate a bonus. Uh. Yeah.
1: So the DOL through employers a little bit of a bone. Um, right now, um, you do not get to include bonuses and commission payments in terms of satisfying the salary basis test. Starting with the new overtime regulations, you will be able to count ten percent of their salary. So those numbers kind of work out to. $821.20 a week must be paid on a salary basis. The remainder, the $9,130, to mm-hmm. get you to that $47,476, can come in the form of discretionary bonus or commission payments. The caveat to that is, is those payments have to be paid at least quarterly, if not more frequently. Um, but if you find that at the end of a quarter, an employee is not on track with their commission payments, mm-hmm. like they're not earning what they should be, the rules also give you the opportunity to make a catch-up payment within one week of the close of the quarter to bring them back up to that level so that by year end, they're going to meet that salary number.
0: Okay. Tell me about email, because we all have email on our iPads and on our phones, and that means we're working from home, in the car, on the way to work, on the way home. So... How is email and, and that work outside of the physical office going to play a part in this?
1: So you remember I said earlier, if you, when you were going to conduct the audit, it was all the work they're doing. Well, you know, if you're giving employees who should be exempt, who, who are non-exempt, the ability to put email on their personal phone, if you're giving them company devices, if they have the ability to log on remotely from home, and in fact, they do do that, you are obligated to pay them for that. Even if you didn't tell them to, if you don't take steps to prohibit them from doing so, they're entitled to be paid. The FLSA, the rule is employees are entitled to be paid if they are if they suffer or are permitted to work. And so the, the big issue that you have here is you are going to, in addition to running up against the rules, you may have to deal with a shift in the culture of your organization. If you have folks who are going to have access to your emails and you are paying them an hourly wage and they spend 30 minutes at home in the morning reading through their emails, that's all compensable time. And so when I say to audit Mm -hmm. your workforce, I literally mean audit all time when they're working um, because that's going to be compensable now when it wasn't before. And in fact, you may have to decide to start restricting and taking back access to emails to you know, employee issued devices um, in order to prohibit them from being able to have access to that sort of stuff outside of normal business hours. Okay.
0: I want to talk a little bit about some of the penalties that are involved. FLSA litigation. It's already one of the top class actions in in federal courts. It Uh, absolutely is. We talked about this yesterday in 2015, it reached settlements of around $460 million with this new rule. It's only going to be elevated and highlighted. So, what risks and penalties are involved with non-compliance?
1: Well, jokingly, most of the work that I do is for employers. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I like to refer to the FLSA as the Lawyer's Relief Act. Um, from an employer standpoint, the biggest risk is not in the penalties that you're going to pay themselves, but it comes with a guaranteed payment of attorney's fees. So one of the things you find is that um, plaintiff's counsel love to take FLSA cases because of the guaranteed fee and ultimately it boils down to a numbers game, right? Like either you paid them right or you didn't pay them right. Do you pay them overtime or you didn't pay them overtime? And so it's it's really costly. Mm-hmm. And so under the FLSA, employees are entitled to back wages of 2 years okay. if they're deemed to be improperly classified. If you willfully violated the FLSA, so if you knew the rule and didn't comply with it, then the court will look back three years. And I think in this case, it would be pretty hard to argue with all of the news about these new wage and hour regulations that you didn't know. Um, And so moving forward, you are going to see litigation that comes up that relates to these new regs and the failure to implement them properly Um, and the one benefit, though, to the FLSA is every day a claim is going to look back from two years of the data filing. So every day you're doing it right is one less day that you can be liable for damages. Um, and so that's why it's important to get it right and to do it right moving forward to limit an employer's liability.
0: So you do think, I mean, we will see more employees um, questioning Um, their status as we get into this new role? um.
1: I have had, you know, folks that I go to the gym with, folks Mm -hmm. that I go to private events with, everything, raising questions to me in casual conversation about how they're paid, which is something that prior to this no one talked about. You know, it wasn't really a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think that once you bring something like this to people's attention, sure, they're Mm going to be looking for more opportunities to figure out, well, does this affect me? Does it not affect me? Um, And you know, in our area, I think in particular, the 47,000 figure, that change from 23,000 to 47,000 is going to affect a wide wide margin of employees more so in our region than it might out west or in the northeast Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I certainly think that you're going to have a lot of employees here in southwestern Virginia in this part of the country who are going to be impacted by the new rules and certainly that's going to raise claims but you know FLSA wage and hour class actions are getting filed all the time I think I have three of them pending right now so I don't think you're going to see them slow down anytime soon.
0: And that forty-seven number—it's important to remember—is uh, temporary. There is a three-year automatic increase. Department of Labor will be required to give one hundred fifty-day notice, or so. But in uh, twenty-nineteen, um, we'll see another uh, increase to this. It's never. I actually two-
1: think it's going to go twenty-twenty. I think it's going to go January 1, 1 2020, 2020.
0: and then yep. at the in the fall of twenty-nineteen, you'll get that one hundred fifty-day notice, number. right? Yep from uh, what that number is of what they're going to have to comply with. I assume it's never too early to, to even start thinking about that. Um, is there an advantage to um, maybe even considering that three-year number and getting your employees closer to that right now?
1: Well, w- I think that what you can look at is the number that they selected is equivalent to the 40th percentile of salaried employees in the lowest-wage census region. That's like a mouthful, right? South, But in the hmm. south is the lowest-wage census region right now Mm -hmm. so hypothetically the lowest wage census region could change over time but presently it's our region Um, and so what I think you should look at is you can see this number over the past few years and you can see how it's grown right and I would do a calculation of how much are we talking about each year what's that percentage growth is it two percent is it three percent how much are we talking about and then I would do an evaluation of your workforce And hopefully all employers are doing annual reviews and potentially Mm -hmm. considering reviews and, you know, increases on a yearly basis or some sort of a set formula and figure out how close your numbers are to those automatic increases as they're going up. And if you are, if you are close, if that is your range, if, if. More likely than not, that's the sort of range that you're providing. Then in three years, naturally, assuming the business continues an upward trajectory, your natural reviews of employees, the pay raises you give them, are going to be in line with the way that the salary should grow consistent with this 40th percentile number. So I would be mindful of that. If you find that you have been stagnant for three years or not growing in terms of salary growth, Then one could expect that that trend is going to continue into the future, and you might want to start thinking about how you want to deal, knowing you're going to have to go up
0: again in, in right. three
1: years. Right. Now you can look. I think that the number, um, the number they originally proposed was a national number. Mm-hmm. And from when the chatter first started to the time they finally issued the rule, it would have been a difference of like forty-eight thousand to fifty-one thousand. Mm-hmm. So you can see that it grew about three thousand in that. I think it was over a three-year period. Okay. So you can look at the same numbers for the South and see how those are growing. And I think if you're close to that, I probably would not anticipate it too much, um, because again, here's the thing these numbers are based upon the polling that they do. So if employers go too far, then you all are all going to unnaturally inflate the percentage. And then Mm -hmm. in three years, you're going to wonder why the number is so much bigger than you wanted it to be. And it's because people made such a big jump. Absolutely. So.
0: So obviously we see this as a complex issue and we could have spent probably an hour on, on the email, um, and travel time and how to comply with just that specific part of this. That's why we're so thankful um, that you and, and um, Spillman Thomas Battle were a part of this. We appreciate you coming out. Thank you um, for having me. Absolutely. If someone is listening, sees this, here's this podcast, and and wants uh, more information, I understand you have an information session coming up, a free info session. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So every year, um, my firm does, throughout our various offices, um, a supervision series, which is a free full-day legal seminar. This year, um, my North Carolina office in Winston-Salem and my office here in Roanoke are doing a joint session. We're going to be at the Grand Over in Greensboro. So it's not too far, but it's sort of a middle ground. We'll concentrate on a lot of these issues, and in fact, I'll be speaking on this for over an hour, Um, and we'll be dealing with another a number of other of the most important legal issues, but it's September 13th, and it's free all day. You just have to get yourself to Greensboro, but it also comes with uh, HRCI, SHRM, um, CLE, I believe. It comes with all the credits, depending on what you need, so it's a really great way to kind of – see what the big hot topics are facing labor and employment, HR professionals, et cetera.
0: Great. You also brought some handouts for those I in do. attendance and for the rest of the Thursday overtime event. So we'll make sure we distribute those to everyone. Um, we we'll just want to thank Carrie Harris with Spelman Thomas in Battle again. Thank Abuelos for hosting us and Oration Recording for getting uh, the tech set up. Uh, stay tuned for our next Policy in Pints, which will be at the Hotel Roanoke uh, right before our Small Business Awards on October 6th. Thanks, Carrie.
1: Thank you.